I cannot swear to you that there is swearing on this show, but there might be. It's the kind of behavior I engage in. It's Friday, August 8th, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today in the spiel, we will talk about a question that was shouted to the president about his message for kids during back-to-school season. Now, that question was about violence, the random violence that comes at the end of a gun. But there is another kind of violence perpetuated on children by ICE agents who just yesterday rounded up hundreds of workers in Mississippi. Some of these workers were fathers and mothers, including the parents of this 11-year-old who was left in emotional agony. Governments, please put your heart. Let my parents be free with everybody else, please. Don't leave the child with crying and everything. I'm in favor of immigration laws and enforcing such laws, but rationally and compassionately. We need to grapple with the consequences. When you grab up parents and their kids are in school and daycare, this is what you get. Yes, school starts early in Mississippi. This was literally the first week of school for some of these kids, and it was inhumane. Some of the parents have been in America longer than a decade. I'd say at that point, call them American. They have families, they have roots, they have value to their employers, they are part of the fabric of their community and their country. And I wonder if the timing of the raid, I can't help but wonder if the timing of the raid was just based on law enforcement priorities or based a little bit on the politics of distraction in two directions. It's not just that the administration would like a distraction from the gun debate. It's also that the president's blustering, posturing, maximum volume pre-announcement of massive ice raids a few weeks ago attracted so much attention from communities and activists and clearly distracted law enforcement. So that backfired. Uh, Perhaps I'm overthinking this administration. What it really is, is as we've said before, it's malevolence tempered by incompetence shot through with mendacity. And also on the overthinking its side of the ledger is the fact that you have this federal agency, 20,000 employees, seven and a half billion dollar budget. You are eventually going to be able to grab up a few hundred people who are plucking and chopping up chickens. But as I said, the question that the president was asked about distraught school children, it wasn't even about this category of distraught school children. But as I said, That question that Trump was asked about distraught school children, it wasn't even this category of distraught school children. No, we will hear what the president had to say, what advice he has for the children. And he answers as a helicopter sliced, whirring above reporters' heads like a giant fan attempting to clear the air of the rank odor of sulfur and bullshit. Hey, we've got a spiel for that. But first, Slate Podcasts have brought you over the years, what next, if then, man up. And so it was time to decide what would be the new podcast to greenlight. Among the possibilities, who dis? For reals? Not now. Or Clip Clop, the new working season on how a cobblestone installer works. No, it is an even better idea than any of those. And mostly, I have to say, It's because of execution. Charles Duhigg is one of our great journalists and also a compelling pal in a journey of trying to figure out just how to do things. Hear that phrase? How to? That 
is the next Slate podcast. It is hosted by Charles Duhigg, and I love it. Charles Duhigg is up next. Charles Duhigg is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. His best-selling nonfiction books include The Power of Habit, Why We Do What We Do in Life and Business, and Smarter, Faster, Better. He was, of course, sued by Daft Punk over that title. (laughs) And so he came crawling to us at Slate, needing a new source of income, and we worked it out. There is a new podcast that he is doing called How To. It is uh, immersive reporting, nonfiction. It's really a fun listen. Uh, Four episodes are out now. He tells you how to rob a bank. He tells you how to put a joke over. He tells you how to withstand pain. tells you about donating a kidney. Hello, Mr. Duhigg. How are you today? Uh, Thanks for having me on. I'm doing great. How-to is one way to organize this. It's not what we think of how-to, like uh, building a cabinet. Did you have the name first, the organizing principle? How'd you figure out what the theme of these podcasts would be? Well, it basically started with this question, which is, what if Dear Abby was an investigative reporter? Yes. Right? What if we took the problems that that people that all of us have, right? Problems I have, you have, that that people who are listening to this podcast have. What if we asked them to send in their problems, mm-hmm. and then we treated that the same way that like reporters treat the presidency or foreign affairs? Oh, right? well, reporters are solving that one exactly. <laughs> exactly solving it every. How to do the presidency? I'm not sure that we have the best example right now. But the second thing is, I I have this deep belief. That you, most advice in this world, you only really listen to it and understand it. It only sticks when it's embedded in a story. Uh huh. Right, right, right. Stories are what make this stuff fun, mm-hmm. right? Why was Star Wars a great film? Not because the special effects were fantastic, not because of the acting, because it has a great story. It's right. surprising. They're, Luke and Leia, they're, real, they're brother and sister, right? Like, who saw that coming? You do need some character to, to travel along with. That's why on the podcast, like, we we talk to one caller and one expert. It's because right. you need someone to hold your hand and introduce you to the idea. In the in the um, kidney episode, I thought that woman who wanted to donate her kidney was a great character because it was very complicated and not easy. Her choice was, was a very legitimate choice. And if you had either stacked the deck with someone where you say – well, uh, how could you not do it? You're just being selfish. Or the other way, you know, you got to do it. It wouldn't be as satisfying. There was, I think there were legitimate arguments on both that's, sides for that's her to nice do to it hear. and not do it. Well, and I think the thing is that, like, this is one of those questions where you're like, would you donate a kidney to someone who needs it? Everyone yeah. would be like, of course. And why mom, haven't if, you? If my mom, right. So yeah. in that case, why haven't you <laughs> right. donated a kidney? There are literally thousands of people who don't happen to be your mother, but they're someone's mother. Right. Why haven't you donated a kidney? And like, what? And it's really easy to have that conversation in theory until someone sits down in front of you and says like your mom needs a kidney and here's all the complicating things like you have kids yeah you're gonna have to take time off you won't be able to provide for your kids when your kids might need a kidney someday by the way you, we don't even know if the kidney is going to help your mom right your mom doesn't want the kidney from you you can right. talk her into it right. but she's saying no i don't want you to do this it gets you really- might die from her, the cancer that she has. That's otherwise. exactly right. Right. It yeah. gets really complicated yeah. really quickly. And I think that that's one of the things that that we tend when we're having these cultural conversations around like tough problems, yeah. we tend not to texturize them with the details of one person's story. We tend right. to talk about them theoretically. Yuval Harari, is that his name? Harari, he says exactly that. That we're ex- essentially chimpanzees, except we tell ourselves a story about a banana. That's exactly yeah. right. And that story is so important, right? Because Everyone, everyone on earth, they know how to lose weight. They know how to be in great shape, right? right. You exercise. But 
It's only when someone gives you advice the right way, when they embed it in some type of narrative and it sticks in your brain and you say, oh, now I understand how this connects to my life. And so when we're talking to these people who who reach out to us, who have problems, and, and we, we get their story, we learn their story, we play their story on the episode. Why one woman we talked to, she's trying to figure out if she should give her kidney to her mother mm-hmm. and how she can convince her mother to take her kidney if she decides to do it. And this really is the best gift. Like, there's no better gift. Yeah. And I have to admit, like, that's a piece of me. That's a piece of my personality. It's a piece of my identity. You know, I always, when I was a kid, I thought I would be one of those people who grew up and adopted 27 kids from Haiti or something. Like, that's very much an appealing identity to me. And I'm not sure it's always the best part of my identity because I think there can be a lot of damage when you adopt 27 kids. You know, it... It's a complicated situation. It's not a clear-cut good, always. And her story is fascinating, right? right? Because then you start to hear, not only is this a story about a woman and her kidney and her mom, it's a story about all of us and our parents, what we owe our parents. So did you know about Larissa McFarquhar's book beforehand? I did. I did. Larissa's a good friend of mine. Was that retro? Did you know, you say, oh, let's have Larissa on the show and then I'll pair it with the kidney? Or did the kidney question come first? The kidney question came first. The kidney question came first and we we were brainstorming, like, who do we have on? And Larissa had written this book about extreme altruism, right, called Stranger's drowning right. about how people go out and they they do these crazy altruistic things that other people weirdly say like I don't like you because you're being too altruistic. Well, it makes them feel bad about it, themselves. It makes them feel bad, but it also kind of creeps us out. And again, yeah. it's it's back to these stories, right? Like what when we tell people that we're going to do something that's too altruistic and it turns them off, then if we tell them the story, no, no, my mom died from a kidney because yeah. she didn't get a kidney, so I'm going to donate a kidney to someone else. Now all of a sudden it makes sense to people and they feel okay with it. Well, I find we get very defensive. Another example is when someone commits to uh, some very, I'm not going to say extreme, but very committed form of environmentalism and they go without. Many people's first reaction is say, well, and then try to nitpick it. Well, you took a plane two years ago or, well, I saw you had some suede in your shoes. or like it, It's very hard for us and it put, we put ourselves, we have to put them down to make ourselves at least a little closer to their level. And I think the great equalizer there is the story, right? So, so another episode that we did. Yeah, is- that's one way to the person who maybe has a knee-jerk criticism, if you tell them a story about it, they might buy it. If you humanize the person going through it, for instance, That's they, exactly became, right. they become something less than an, an abstraction or a uh, just a symbol of what you're doing wrong. So so the, yeah. one of the other episodes for How To is um, this woman named Sophie Power who is an ultramarathon. Yeah. And so her question is, how can I withstand pain? I run ultramarathons. And I think my first instinct when I, when I heard her question was like, you're an ultra marathoner. Like either you love pain, you're a glutton for punishment, or number two, I don't care because like you're in so much better shape than I am. Who? Why would I? Get? But then we learn about her. She's like this this mom who she um she was like pudgy and out of shape and overweight, and then she got fired from her job and she was so pissed off that she had gotten fired because people told her like, well, just go have kids. Like don't don't yeah. look for another job. So she's got this chip on her shoulder and she starts running these races. Right. And like, to be fair, her job was running the fifteen hundred. So <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but but the point is that like once you hear the story, like it's not actually a story about ultra marathoners, right? It's a story about someone who's just like all of us who has these setbacks and needs to find some source of identity, something that we can be proud of. And then we talk to this guy, Wim Hof, the Iceman, who gives her the advice. He's the, he's the, <laughs> he's, he's a the character. Expert. He's a character. If he's... he and your bank robber guy <laughs> met, who would, who would emerge at the end? Uh, Lock Wim them Hoff. both in a room. Wim Hof. Yeah. Wim Hof, the, 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 he's a Dutch extreme athlete, the Iceman. 
and he speaks like a Dutch extreme athlete. Right. But like the thing about Wim Hof is that like he's this guy who like immerses himself in ice for fun. And again, you think he's crazy. And then you talk to him and you get a story and it turns out that like he's like really shy as a kid and he's socially awkward and he has like a lot of panic attacks. And so he gets in the ice because it gives him a way to calm down. I think the point is that like there is so much knowledge in the heads of everyone we walk past every single day. And if you stopped them, if I stopped you and I said, like, what's the piece of advice I need to know to succeed? You would tell me something and it would, like, go in one ear and out the other. But also it would probably be a bromide or a platitude. Absolutely. Like, whenever you get that advice from the graduation speaker, it's more about what the graduation speaker wants to be known for. Maybe maybe that's why Make Your Bed made struck such a cultural chord because it's really quite tangible. It's not grandiose. It does... I'm going to get some advice like don't give in to your ideals. Like whoever says I'm giving in to my ideals. Right. <laughs> maybe that's – Maybe I think we do need to reform graduation speaking, but maybe we've lit upon a way to do it. The other thing that I, ha- I think happens when we tell stories is that we take a piece of advice and we actually don't give that advice. Yeah. We try and use the advice as a way of explaining the world. Uh-huh. So the, at the end of the day, the advice that you would give me or the advice that any expert gives anyone else, if it's just a piece of advice, it actually doesn't work. Right. If it's a way of saying, here's how you can take this chaotic world and look for some purpose and pattern in it that makes sense to you, then all of a sudden it gives you something you can actually use in life. So what's the two, the most mundane example of the four I've heard so far is how to tell a joke. It was yeah. wildly entertaining because uh, my friend Garrett Goleman, the great comedian, was one of the was the person who you asked how to tell a joke. But how is that advice about how to tell a joke? How does that talk about the greater world and organizing. So what I love about that is that all the advice that Gary gives is either super obvious, right? Mm -hmm. You should look for some mundane fact and and like make funny on that. Or say chicken, not hen. And say chicken, not hen, right? Or his advice is frankly like kind of hard to apply. Like when we were making that episode, one of the interesting things was that like all of his rules, we were like, is this really a rule for being funny? And it was like, well, if you're Gary Goldman, it's a rule for being funny. Except the last thing he says, his last rule is you should basically tell jokes that make you laugh. Right. Right? That if you entertain yourself, if you just have faith, it'll entertain someone else. You'll find your audience. You'll be able... And, like, when you think about it, that is advice for anyone who's doing anything creative, right? Or even parenting. Yeah, or, like, doing a podcast. Exactly, or doing a podcast. If you entertain yourself, if you kind of listen to your... I mean, this is the original advice, right? To thy's own be true. Is that what it is? <laughs> to Some... thine own self be true. That's it. That's... First do no harm. Thus spake Zarathustra. <laughs> one of those things. <laughs> Thank God we have a philosopher in the room. But like, Somebody knows is... the proper use of the pronoun thine. <laughs> I'm a the thine. Nine, though. Those are my pronouns. <laughs> I'm going to start putting that on my email. The, yeah. the thine. Yeah. But, the, but the point is that, like, he's exactly right, right? Gary Goleman, the final piece of advice he gives us is actually the oldest advice that we get from Aristotle. And, like, and everyone's heard that. Like, be true to yourself. Do things that feel authentic to you. But you go tell some college graduate, like, follow your dreams. I know. They're not going to know what the hell to do with that. But here we are actually telling you, now here's how you make it real. If you're going to tell a joke, if you want to write a funny joke, yeah. figure out a joke that you laugh at. 
Gary, did you, I don't know if you knew this or this is why you chose him, but he had been tweeting out advice for comics. Right. He has this series and my son, my 10 year old does comedy. And so I've been reading it and I told him one of his pieces of advice was if you have a topic and you have some jokes on it, go and do a deep Wikipedia dive because you're going to find out some weird stuff. And we did this with a couple things and it really worked. Really? Yeah, because the audience loved, I mean, maybe they love hearing from a 10-year-old a fact about the state of Indiana or whatever. <laughs> but once you, actually it was Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. But once you tell them that and they're like, oh, and then you do a joke on that, there's something, there's something wonderful about learning a little and then being rewarded by that knowledge that you just got by being tickled by an aspect of it. It's a, and, and what I completely agree. Mm-hmm. And and the thing that I have found is that there is this disparagement socially among among cultured elites like yes. ourselves. Yes. This disparagement of learning and engaging with everyday problems. So I wrote this book, The Power of Habit. And it's about the science of habit formation. It's about a cookie, right? Yeah, it's, it's about how to avoid the cookie. And the book's been really, re- I was very, very lucky. It's done really, really well. But what's interesting is like, there is this disparagement of the problems that we have every day. That like, they're not important enough or they're not serious enough. It's not, if it's not happening in the White House right. or if it's not happening over the Taiwan Strait, it's not something. But the truth of the matter is, you know what really matters to me? avoiding that cookie in the afternoon. Like, it's so hard, and I feel so bad about myself when I eat it. And if someone can tell me, like, what's going on inside my brain, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and, in fact, if they can take what's going on inside my brain to help me avoid the cookie, and then relate it to, like, how I parent and how Target tries to figure out if shoppers are pregnant before their parents even know, and how governments work and why some governments succeed and fail, then all of a sudden the world starts making sense to me. My problem becomes an aspect of the world problem, and I really want to learn that answer, and I want to live it. All right. Charles Duhigg is the host of the New Slate podcast. There are four of them right now in the feed of the show called How To with Charles Duhigg. You've got to listen. This is a really fascinating show, a fascinating contribution to the podcast universe. We're pleased to have dragged Charles into our universe. Hey, good talking to you. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. Mr. President, now that we have a whirring helicopter, it is high time that you answered a few questions about the dead and the grieving about your fellow Americans to do your pastoral duty, I would say, to engage in the moral obligation of consolation and God-willing uplift. So I will shout this question to you as you are doing other things. Now, if you can't hear the question that's being shouted above the helicopter, it is about schools starting up and what message the president might have to our school children. Well, my message to young children going back to school is go and really study hard and someday you'll grow up and maybe be president of the United States or do something else that's fantastic. Uh, They have nothing to fear. They have nothing to worry about. It's going to be safe, except that it's not. I'll tell you what I tell my kids when they get concerned about things like this. I say, this is concerning. These things happen. They're terrible things. But I've got to tell you, the chances that will happen in your school are so, so low. There has never been a mass shooting like this in a New York City school. The city itself is much safer than most of America. Okay, that's specific to New York City, so it's a little selfish of me. I'm sorry you don't live in a city with the gun rules and laws and enforcement of New York City. Would that everyone in America did? But anyway, I also tell them, when it happens anywhere, everyone knows about it. And it makes it seem like it's going to happen in 
our community next. And that's really sad, but it's also so unlikely that it will happen to you or to your friends. So I understand your concern and your right to be concerned, but it's really an extremely rare occurrence to any one individual like yourself. I I would say something like that and a half. Of course, it's a little unfair to compare me to the president because I do have children and I have had these conversations with them. Oh, wait, that's right. So does he. Forgot about that. This isn't about criticizing the president's son. It's just noting that the president has a son and never, ever gives any indication that having a son of of the age of a school-aged child has any effect whatsoever on how he sees the world. Obama used the fact that he was a parent to connect to the world. I don't think in a cynical way, though he's a politician and an excellent communicator, I think because it deeply affected him and he let us in on his thoughts and emotions about how it affected him and people connected saying, even though this guy is the president, I too have similar emotions. In fact, Barack Obama, after one of these horrible school shootings, said one of the most perfect things I've ever heard about parenting in general. He said that being a parent is the equivalent of having your heart outside of your body all the time walking around. Of course, what that is, is vulnerable. It's the very definition of vulnerability, which President Trump has never shown, possibly never experienced. Let me amend that. He's never acknowledged, though constantly experiences. Everything about him is him, 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 him. This week was on full display. His crowd at the hospital, his rock star reception by people who were shot and recovering, the deference shown him by elected officials who were representing their people. His great, tremendous crowds, as contrasted with Beto's smaller, sadder crowds. They literally were sadder, and Beto did console them, something Trump would never do. The president's job is, well, it's to say something like this. I can only hope it helps for you to know that you're not alone in your grief. That our world, too, has been torn apart. That all across this land of ours, we have wept with you. We've pulled our children tight. And you must know that whatever measure of comfort we can provide, we will provide. Whatever portion of sadness that we can share with you to ease this heavy load, We will gladly bear it. Newtown, you are not alone. Except Donald Trump is alone. He is solipsistic. And when one is solipsistic, one can only think of the one. One cannot conceive of sentiments outside the self. Because because solipsism is the belief that the self is the only thing that's true. In fact, it's the only thing that's known to be real. The president is not just the most solipsistic president we've ever had. And by the way, this is a job that selects for egoists. President Trump only knows, only acts on, literally only understands how one thing works. And that thing is him, himself, his needs, his defenses, his rages, his truth. Of all the things that you would think a president could react to, a president, by the way, who came into office on his first day speaking of American carnage as a background condition in this country. You might think that of all the challenges facing us, that 
carnage would be one that wouldn't totally flummox and confuse Donald Trump. You'd be wrong. Because, of course, his solipsism is so florid that he can only conceive of the American carnage that is his version of American carnage, which is to say a carnage that victimizes his version of America. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bien-Aimé and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. One of those two will be accompanying me in like an hour to the Iowa State Fair. We will eat food on a stick. We will chase down Democrats polling at 1%. And we will take bets on if that figure in the Sesame Street butter sculpture is Abby Cadabby or if someone just dropped a fried Twinkie near the display. The gist. Des Moines fun fact. Des Moines nickname is the Hartford of the West. I bet the Des Moines version of Vin Baker and Colin McEnroe aren't quite as interesting. Oomperu, depru, dupru, and thanks for listening.